3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR, 855 AM Radical Radio. As always, I'm, this is James. I'm joined by Rob and Grace. How are we doing, everybody? Good. Rob, how was your break over the week? It was good. It was good. You're in Bris Vegas. Bris Vegas. <laughs> how was it? So nice. Yeah. And really, like, it's such a nice city. Um, and the jacarandas were in full bloom. Oh, they're mm. on. They're on, and uh, yeah, I just spent like five days just sitting by the river, reading books. Oh, beautiful. You got as much reading done as you want to do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember we were mentioning, I think at the last end of the show last week, it was like, Rob is definitely having the time of your life. Yeah. <laughs> by the beach, reading a book. Elbow yep. deep in books. <laughs> yep. We yep. all want to live that life. This is your hot girl summer, Rob. Yeah. Um, somehow, like every every time I visit an airport within the last year, I've managed to pick up a Richard Osman book. Oh wow! He's just written a series called The Thursday Murder Club, which I'm pretty obsessed with. Yep. Um, pretty lighthearted crime, but oh, you need that though. I just <laughs> just devoured it. Right now, you need a bit of that. Yeah. Anyway, how are you guys? How was your weekend, Grace? Good. I was doing my usual crunch. Yeah. One mm. more week. One more week oh my now. God. The one countdown's more... on. Wow. Yeah. Actually, I'm kind of scared for this because I feel like I realize, like, oh my God, after this week, what am I going to be doing? I think yeah. I'm going to be contemplating life. Yeah. Because that's how I've been. You've just got this void of free time. Yeah. But I'm, I'm excited at the same time because, like, I'm finally done and I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Was... So next week's show, will you be done? Basically, yeah. Whoa, uh, Whoa. it's gonna be a big show. <laughs> big show. I'm gonna use it to celebrate. I'm gonna, yeah, do my thing as usual. Yeah, the countdown's on, everybody. Countdown's on. <laughs> One more week. One more week. You can do it. We're almost there. Yes. How was your week, James? Yeah. My week was good. Um, I've I've just been binging documentaries nonstop, nice. which is a great time. Nice. I've discovered that if you play video games and watch documentaries at the same time, <clears throat> you just you can just dominate it. You can just do do so many different topics. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I might have an ADHD brain because I'm just going whizzing, whizzing between things. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Nice. Have you used uh, when I was in in Brisbane? I came across Means TV, which is the world's first worker owned anti-capitalist streaming service Ooh. so uh james you might like that and any listeners out there who are interested um i'm gonna write yeah that you down. can just go to means.tv and yeah it'll be there that'll be some good binging yeah it looks it's got some pretty good stuff on there oh great do you want to jump to some uh, news headlines yep i'm so. happy to start off um so a good news story just to start off surging renewable energy 
right now sees a record supply to Australia's electricity grid, according to The Guardian. At one point in September, nearly 100% of Eastern Australia's demand could have been met by renewables, says energy operator AMO. So for half an for a half hour in the middle of a Saturday last month, enough renewable energy was available to meet all but 1.4% of Eastern Australia's entire electricity demand, wow. the closest to reaching 100% clean power in the grid's history. So go Whoa. renewables. We're doing it. Whoa. We're doing it. Mm. It's happening. Mm. Treasury data is expected to show fuel prices rose 7% in the three months leading up to the end of September. Global factors such as the war in Ukraine, supply challenges, and a weaker Australian dollar have been cited as the causes of the rise. But there's more uncertainty uncertainty ahead. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says prices could rise even further as the situation in Gaza escalates. And in regards to the Israel-Hamas war that's still currently happening, according to the Guardian, at the according to the Guardian, the health ministry. Of at Gaza has said that the death toll rises to about four thousand six hundred fifty-one Palestinians, and they've been killed by they've they've been killed by the Israeli airstrikes. Forty percent are children. More than fourteen thousand two hundred forty-five others have been wounded, and those include seventy percent of them being children and women. The spokesperson, whose name is Ashraf Al Khodra, claims that Israel strikes killed. 266 Palestinians over the past 24 hours, including 117 children. Currently, the claims have not been independently verified. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in Near East have announced 29 of its colleagues in Gaza have been killed since 7th of October. According to the agency, half of these colleagues were teachers, uh, teachers for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Yep. Well done. Got a pretty big show today, covering mm. lots of topics as, as we normally do. Yep. Uh, first up, Grace, we've got an interview you did on discussing what makes a good life. Yes. So I actually did this interview about two months back. Yeah, it's about two months. And uh, it was very interesting. I stumble upon this article in in conversation talking about something we all I think we we want to always contemplate about it was a very interesting topic and it was also very nice to hear how we look at good life in the aspects of philosophy and existentialism mm. it goes a bit about history but also looking at it in a very philosophical way Ooh, so yeah, we love a bit of that. I'm sure Rob would be loving that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would love to have one of those good lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of, one of those mysterious things that someone calls a good life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Rob would jump into housing. Is that right? Yeah. So I thought, um, in light of yesterday's, uh, uh, sorry, Saturday's rally to save public housing, we'd revisit my conversation with Harry Millward, the general a, a general delegate of the Renters and Housing Union to talk about Victorian Labor's notorious housing plan, yeah. um, which obviously includes them knocking down 44 or all of the state's public housing towers. Yeah. So I just thought we'd re- revisit that and awesome. see, just be reminded of what it's all about. Yeah, great. Looking forward to that. Mm. After that, we've got a, a, an interview that Claude Galloy did, uh, speaking to Friends of the Earth, no, ga- no new gas campaigner Freya Leonard, on how renters deserve to have gas-free homes and how to make it happen. 
So, and that's from uh, Dirt Radio not long ago, mm. which is a great interview. And then last up, Grace, we're talking to Dr. J. Daniel Thompson about influencers. Yes, so this is about in how people have been turning to influencers for information, especially you can see a lot on TikTok. And a lot of times they mm. can, they may be possibly inaccurate or disinformation, misinformation. So yeah, we're going to be talking to Dr. J in regards to this. And also, how can we ensure ethical online communication? Mm. Mm. That'd be good. Important conversation. That'd be good. Mm-hmm. So we'll jump to our first interview now with uh, Oscar Davis that Grace did on what makes a good life and the concept of existentialism. Good morning, Oscar. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. So, Oscar, can we just first get to understand a bit about what is Aristotle's philosophy of a good life? And first, what what should we understand? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I guess Aristotle's story of of moral philosophy is a really important one because it's, it's the first time in the West... At least in, in, as in, in Western philosophy, mm. that an entire work was dedicated to the subject of ethics. So this, this, this comes in his book, Nicomachean Ethics. And I guess his big contribution, um, and it's, it's the first line of his book, is that everything we do you know, and everything we think about seems to aim at some sort of good, right? And, and this is the, it's called teleology, I guess the ends-based kind of thinking that eventually would um, become quite popular um, due to Thomas Aquinas. Mm. He, he says, you know, we can think about what makes a good thing by determining, I guess, what it is that we're talking about. So this is a really important way of thinking. And I use the example of the knife um, in that article is that if we want to talk about a good or a bad knife, you know, we need to understand what is the essence of a knife? What is it actually for? And of course, we once we decide, well, a knife is to cut things, we can start saying, well, a good knife then must be a sharp one. And we can apply this this way of thinking to, you know, what makes a good parent or what makes a good friend, what mm. makes a good lawyer. So, you know, by systematically thinking about what the essential features of a thing is, we can go on to make claims about what makes a good one or a bad one. And I think this is, you know, the, the great contribution of Aristotle. And he, he then directs this question at the human soul. So what is it that truly makes us different to everything else? And... We are more than beings that just want to grow or reproduce, right? We can reason, Aristotle says. Mm. So if we want to live good, flourishing lives, we need to begin our ethics, you know, our study of how to live good lives from this fact that we must exercise our reason. You know, that's the thing that really makes us special as a species, as far as we know. And we must exercise that reason in accordance with virtue, he says. And so, yeah, that's... That's Aristotle's philosophy of of the good life. Mm, that's very interesting. And then now coming into this concept of existentialism, Ooh. what what does what does that mean in regards to Aristotle's philosophy? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess the particular kind of existentialism that I'm referring to is, is Jean Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. and particularly a lecture which was given in 1945. Right. So he's um, it's at a pretty important time in history and thousands have packed into this hall, right? It would have been like the Taylor Swift concert of Paris in 1945. He was, everyone wanted to be there. And, mm. you know, the, the stories we get are is that, you know, people were sitting on the stairs and everything. They wanted to see Jean-Paul Sartre dispel some myths about this, this philosophy that had been getting around for a while now called existentialism. Mm. And, and Sartre 
Sartre kicks off the lecture talking about, well, what I'm talking about is not some bourgeois and nihilist way of thinking. It's a deeply human um, and deeply, it's relevant to all of us, you know, this way of thinking about how we should live our lives. And an important part of that lecture, and the bit I thought draws quite a nice contrast with Aristotle's notion of essence and purpose, is that um, Sartre thinks it's completely the opposite way around, right? Mm. He he wants to start from the fact that it's a condition of our existence, you know, our, our very being, that we are fundamentally free. And what he means here is that we have so many choices to make, um, and every day we have to make thousands of them. And all of these choices are kind of a source of anguish for us. Like it's something that, you know, this is the existential crisis, is that we always have to figure out and decide who we are and what we're doing. It's kind of exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, the, I guess the psychological aspect of existentialism is that what they believe is that we often find ways to try and escape this anguish. So I, I like to call these existentialist escape tactics, right? And mm-hmm. one escape tactic in in Sartre's language is when we deny our ability to transcend uh, in an imminent situation, right? So Mm. we come to tell ourselves that we don't really have a choice, for example, that our work, or Mm. maybe we believe in fate, or we have these deep obligations to another person. And these things mean that we must act one way or another. Now, in a practical sense, this might sometimes be true, but what Sartre thinks is that more often than not, we're using an escape tactic here to escape that anguish of having to choose for ourselves. And he gives that example of a waiter. You know, it's quite a, a, an often cited example from Sartre. And he's he's watching a waiter one day walking walk around this cafe in Paris, and he notices that the waiter is just moving too perfectly, right? He's moving too quickly. He's standing up a little too straight. Um, he's doing everything too weightily, you know. It's almost like he's given up his identity as a human and wanted to take on this identity of a waiter. I guess Sartre's concern here is that this might extend to certain situations when we take on a role of responsibility to the extent that we come to deny our own individuality and perhaps even our humanity, right? And I guess in the lecture where this is surfacing for Sartre is that in dominant religions um, or even philosophies, mm. we might appeal to a divine law or to a philosopher from the 17th century to define who we are and what we should be. And this is what is inauthentic, Sartre says. We must, at the end of the day, decide our own lives uh, for ourselves. And so we are fully responsible for meaning in our lives in the sense that we have no predefined essence, mm. uh, you know, contra Aristotle from which we can infer what we ought to do. You know, we have to invent ourselves first, and, and that is our meaning and purpose. And that's what he means by, I guess, living authentic and free lives. Mm. So, and I guess with that, 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 there's obviously a difference in regards to authenticity and obviously uh, eudaimonia, which is the meaning of highest, highest human good. So, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a another way to bring out that contrast, I guess Aristotle says we're aiming at eudaimonia, you know, this flourishing in the sense of what you are. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a, it's a um, you know, fulfilling the essence of what makes you unique. You know, that flourishing knife is a sharp one. A flourishing human is virtuous. You know, they're using their capacity to reason to balance virtue. And 
they're striving to be courageous and benevolent and caring, but finding that golden mean through the application of careful thinking. That's how we avoid doing anything in excess or having a deficiency of virtue. Um, and that's how, at the end of the day, we're going to live flourishing lives is by constantly applying reason to you know, the habits we are forming and, and the people that we are. But yeah, Sarch is coming along and saying, no, we must have the courage to decide for ourselves when we, when we face difficult choices. You know, he uses this example of a student who comes up to him after a lecture and asks him, you need to help me decide, you know, should I go off to war and, and help the Allied forces or should I stay home and care for my mother? You know, it's a, it's a life-defining decision. I need your help. You know, and Sartre says, look, you know, there's no philosophy that could help you here. Um, nothing I can say can, can push you either way. The only thing that matters is that you make a decision for yourself and that when you make that choice, it's authentically your own. You know, you can't say I made this choice because, you know, Immanuel Kant says it's what I ought to do, right? And so the choice must be fully ours. That is what defines us and that is what is an authentic choice. And that's how you, I guess, safeguard that freedom that defines your humanity for such. Mm. Mm. That is very interesting. And since we've understand the whole point of make, what makes a good life is really embracing freedom and authenticity and everything. But obviously at the end, I guess a lot of people have very different opinions in what they define of meaning have a good life, even if they don't embrace this kind of philosophy, but maybe mm -hmm. they do without unknowingly. So what is your, what is your definition of that in, <laughs> in regard, when applying this, when you apply this philosophy? Sure. So, so yeah, I am um, in the article. I sort of, I like to finish with a bit of Montaigne because um, Michel de Montaigne, he he wrote these this book essays, you know, towards the end of his very busy political life, and it's hard to pin down any kind of distinct philosophy in Montaigne. But I think that's precisely his point, and why he is a nice middle ground there um, between Aristotle and, and Jean Paul Sartre, because he's he's saying, look, my philosophy is in living. It's in every single art or everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm thinking about um, defines me, you know, and I think mm -hmm. there's this saying, um, you know, you can you find it all over the place written on like a fridge or something, you know, the way we live our days is how we live our lives. And I think that's quite um, something Montaigne would have really believed in. It's not, you know, thinking too much about our predefined essence or our, you know, the anguish of our freedom. It's mm -hmm. just, yeah, how we fill our days and what we choose to engage in, the people we choose to be with um, and what we choose to think about, I guess these are the things which at the end of the day end up defining who we are and that's where our purpose and happiness springs from, I think. Mm, that is amazing. I think for me, what makes a good life is, I mean, in very short words, I guess just being happy. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we want to yeah, take another so like, experience, yeah, like like Epicurus says that, you know, just let's just try to be happy. Let's not set any, the bar too high. Let's just... But yeah, I think just what makes a good life for me is, yeah, just being happy. And I, I definitely agree a lot in the sense of the purpose and the freedom and authenticity is something Ooh. we really need to embrace. And yeah, I, and I agree with Montaigne as well. Like sometimes we, we don't know what we want to choose and 
sometimes we we can't really decide. So I guess at the end of the day, it's just really seeing how we decide for ourselves what's best for us. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are running out of time already. But mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it was just just been very amazing. It's it's very interesting of what you've wrote about this article. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was me speaking to Oscar Davis, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bond Universe, Professor of Philosophy and History at Bond University, discussing what makes a good life and the concept of existentialism. Now, James and Rob, I've asked this with the other brekkie people when I was doing this interview. So for you two, what makes a good life? What's your definition of it? You go first, Rob, because I might ramble. I don't know. <laughs> uh, good life to me is a simple life, you know, yeah. minimalistic. Um, just a time where I don't have to work yeah. until the day that. that I die is a good life to me. And I don't know. As long mm-hmm. as there's a, a notebook and a pen nearby where I can write to my heart's content, that's a good life, right? That's your that's moment. Beautiful. That's lovely. That's what I have. Yeah. That's all I have. Um, I study well-being, and my PhD is on well-being. Um, I'll keep my answer short. But um, I'm inspired by Amartya Sen's approach, the capabilities approach, Mm. which is basically um, a good life is the life that someone wants to live and has reason to live. And then our job Mm. and government's job is to provide the conditions in which they can do that. So, you know, a lot of social justice needs to be done. A lot of basic needs need to be met. Mm. And then people can properly live their good lives when they're not in poverty and not struggling day to day and they're insecure. Mm. So that's my short PhD uh, <laughs> little spiel. Very interesting, yeah. that. For me, my life, I want it to be simple. I'm inspired by Buddhist stuff. So the middle way, the eightfold path, you know. Right mindfulness, right judgment, right understanding, those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I feel like, for me, I just want to be happy living a simple life. I don't really care about being like a CEO or like yeah. the top journal of the year or anything mm. or having a Porsche wealthy life with no. Ferraris or mm. buying luxury bags. Like, I don't think that's a thing. I, it's, all, it's all for the show and for what, you know? Yeah. Like, I guess, I mean, I can't really say it for everyone because it really does make some people happy and i mm. guess if you're happy then that's great but you know at the end mm. of the day like why are we have why are we having all this for show and for what you know yeah. i always tell myself what are we doing all this for yeah. is it necessary is it for a purpose does it make you happy and is it does it even give you a good life or is it just because you want the compliments and that feeling of being being com- of mm. having someone to look at you so highly you know Mm. And I am so yeah. For me, just being simple, living happily, being able to be with my friends and family—that's more mm. important to me. Mm. Probably so, yeah. the the other thing that I like to add is that right now we're trying to work out how to live a good life while being sustainable and just as well. Mm-hmm. We mm. don't really have a model for that yet. We're working it out, mm. and a lot of the work three CR does and that sort of stuff is trying to find out how can we be sustainable and just, but also live a good life for us. Mm. And that's uh, it's something we're working on in the academic mm. community and in the in the in the social justice communities and all of that. So there's a bit of work to do, but good food for thought, Grace. Mm. Nice interview. Good interview. 
Uh, now we're going to go to a song. This is uh, Charcoal Lane by the legendary Archie Roach. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street, and we pop all and muster for a quart of wine. Then, right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat, we cross over Smith Street to the end of the line. Then we laugh and sing, do anything to take away the pain, trying to keep it down as it first went down. In Charcoal Lane Spending young And telling jokes Now the wine is tasting good Cause it's getting closer and closer To its end Have a sip And roll some smokes We'd smoke better maids if we could But we just may do with some city street blend Then we'd all chuck in and we'd start to grin When we had enough to do it again But if things got tight then we had to buy Charcoal Lane Up Gertrude Street We'd walk once more With just a few cents short And we'd stop at the builders To see who we could see Then we'd bite around Until we scored fight isn't just the Palestinians fight it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land it's about a fight for freedom everybody should be standing here today saying free Palestine solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation my people who've never ceded their sovereignty we should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. 
fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast with Rob, James and Grace. You just heard a few announcements, but before that was Charcoal Lane by the legendary Archie Roach. Um, now we're going to revisit my conversation with Harry Millward, who is a general delegate for the Renters and Housing Union, about Victoria Labor's notorious housing plan. Here we go. I guess first up, just a general question now that we've had time to kind of comb through the plan in its entirety. What are your thoughts on the housing plan? So the housing plan, as proposed, is a mixed bag. It does have some good parts of it, some improvements, some progress. It's, on the whole, it's not a good plan. Taken in pieces, parts of it are good and uh, we would support them. But there's 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 too many questions that have gone unanswered and there's too many undefined terms or, or very vaguely defined terms. Um, and it doesn't go far enough in, in some places, uh, and it's far too developer friendly in others. It's ignoring the reasons we got to this point. It's, it's a bandaid rather than <laughs> trying to actually sort out the, the issues at the root of the issue, which is, uh, this sort of neoliberal approach to housing where your ability to live and to have a house is based on your productivity, how much you earn, um, what use you are to the economy, rather than just by nature of being a human being. Yeah, you're talking a little bit about definitions before. Can we just go more into that? So a word that comes up a, a lot is social housing, right? Now, social housing is an umbrella term that uh, means quite a few things. So social housing can mean public housing. Social housing can mean community housing. Social housing can mean um, Aboriginal uh, housing. And social housing can mean state-run Aboriginal housing. Now, and then you've got something that's related but not the same, which is affordable housing. Now, how these terms are defined uh, as far as public housing is is quite well-defined. Public housing costs uh, a a tenant 25% of their income, whatever that income is, generally long-term tenure, so people can live there in their entire lives, uh, can go generations, have their families there and, you know, have, have certain protections. 
Whereas when we're talking about community housing, community housing is 30% often, possibly more, uh, depending on whichever community housing provider you get. They're run by non-for-profit groups and businesses. And so what it actually means to have community housing may differ uh, depending on which provider you're getting. And it's not the same across the board. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about affordable housing, I I, I asked directly for a definition of affordable housing um, and it's legislated to be the most vague of terms. What What is affordable housing? I don't know. Does it mean that you can afford it? No, but it might. It's not necessarily connected to your income so that if you're a low income person, that it would be different to if you're a high income person. It's very hard to support a plan when you don't even know the, the definitions of the terms. Sorry, I know the definition. What I don't know is how they will interpret that definition. Yeah. And uh, these are, you know, used as a way to, to feed money to private developers um, to fill these spaces, and they aren't necessarily even affordable. They aren't necessarily even affordable for the area they're in. You can you can say affordable till you're blue in the face, but it doesn't mean what I would assume that most people would understand it to mean. Right. So do you think they've maybe intentionally or not included vague wording or vague definitions oh, to uh, sort of get around absolutely. that? Oh, absolutely. It's it's we, weasel words all the way down. If If you're talking to someone who is using the term social housing to distract from the idea that you're turning places that were formerly 100% public housing into a mix of like public housing with community housing and some private housing and some affordable housing, you know, they might say, oh, the number of social housing will remain the same, the same number. But what does that mean? Does that mean the same number of public housing? Does it mean that the the proportions have shifted to more towards community housing, which as a general rule is uh, offers less protections and is less affordable than public housing. So it's, it's, it's very much seems to be a way of avoiding accountability for the actual legislation or actual planning they're doing. Part of uh, what we were doing uh, recently, supporting Barrett Beacon in conjunction with a lot of other groups. So the Renters and Housing Union happily works with other groups. Um, we fought alongside communist groups, socialist groups, uh, political parties like the Greens uh, were there as well with us, and uh, just interested parties, the public housing tenants themselves. And the discussion always sort of was a distraction when it came to speaking to the government because they would always insist that no we're not removing social housing but they are removing the uh, much of the public aspect of it they're turning parts of it into uh community housing yeah okay and i guess that gives them a license to do whatever they want yeah i mean they can promise certain things uh i believe the the name of the tower or the uh, name of the public housing estate is going to escape me at this very moment, but, um, you know, they'll, they'll promise that these tenants who have their community there uh, will be able to move back in within two years, say. And then, you know, five years later, 
and they're still not even started construction. Mm. So, you know, it, there's a lot of faith being asked of a of a government that hasn't uh hasn't done much to earn that faith, I would say. Yeah, sure. Probably one of the uh, most scariest parts of the plan to me was the fact that, you know, they're knocking down all of all of the state's public housing towers, right? So what yes. what happens to the residents while, you know, the houses well, are being replaced? Yeah, no, that's a tricky thing because they have to go somewhere. They so either well, not either, they are going somewhere that would could otherwise be taken up by someone else. Um, who has the, those same needs. We've got a waiting list for public housing that is uh, some, for some people hitting a decade, right? So the idea that all of a sudden you've got all of these people who are already settled then taking up those spaces is pretty mad to me. Um, and the government has stated that the condition that the public housing towers are in would make them impossible to bring up to standard, which is kind of a self-own that they haven't been doing their job and keeping up with maintenance. But also, I mean, if it's true, I haven't seen any evidence of it. I have asked them. They they have stated to me that um, keep getting these towers up to scratch would be impossible because of how they were constructed. I asked for evidence to that effect. Um, they said they would get it to me, and that was a while ago now, and none has been provided. Uh, so I can only, uh, without that information, I can only assume that the the advocates to keep these public houses are correct, that they could be retrofitted to uh, be raised to standard. Um, and until I see that evidence uh, that dem- demonstrably says otherwise. I, I have to assume that they are just using that as an excuse to reduce their responsibilities in the housing sector, which seems to be what this is all about. The the slow decline of, uh, of public land for public good um, into yeah. a neoliberal nightmare where... Uh, you know, what isn't privatised now, like electricity was privatised, public transport was privatised, housing is being privatised. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, and it's not working out like the uh, these neoliberal goals all say that it will, that it will create competition, that it will bring out the best, because that's just human needs are not a profitable market. Um, if they are, it's it's in a very inhumane way uh, that is unacceptable, I assume, to uh, most people in this country. So, yeah. um, yes, I, I, um, I'm I, very concerned about the plan to tear down the, the public towers. Sure. And do you think, obviously it's it's pretty egregious that knocking down these towers in the first place is, is a solution, but do you think that, the buildings that they're being replaced with have any kind of hope of, you know, like shortening this waiting list of people looking for public housing? Um, does it have any hope? Well, the vagaries of of this plan, and, and this is just a plan. This is not legislated. So I can't say it's impossible. Um, it certain, certainly seems unlikely, and it, 
doesn't seem as though their intention is to uh, put the the house the needs of those public housing tenants uh, front of mind. Um, so I would call it a leap of faith and not one that I would be willing to jump. Done. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. That was the first part of my interview with Harry Millward from a few weeks back. Harry Millward is the is a general delegate of the Renters and Housing Union, and we were talking about the Notorious Housing Plan from Victorian Labor, which was released recently. We are just going to take a take some take an ad break and then we will return for the second part vibe union is bringing exciting ongoing showcases of local talent across melbourne this creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go in the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Let's move on to talk about you know, the kind of attitude of just simply building more houses to fix mm-hmm. the states. Yeah, this um, is this is an interesting one. Um, it's it's often cited by the government that the, the, the way out of the housing crisis is more stock. It's completely incorrect. Uh, you can build uh, 10,000 luxury apartments that no one can afford, and that doesn't actually help anybody. So the type of housing that we're building is, is vitally important. We have the housing infrastructure right now to, if not end, at least reduce the housing crisis to a much more manageable state. A lot of it is uh, tied up in Airbnb or short short stay accommodation um, of whatever brand uh, you might see. Uh, The waiting list for housing, the people on the waiting list um, is half as the amount of stock we have in short stay accommodation so we have twice as much 
stock in short stay accommodation as we do people who are on the waiting list for homes. Now, uh, I I don't I don't know how anyone could not find these numbers sort of shocking, um, and that's that's both in Victoria and Australia wide. Um, well, yeah. So sorry, I've I've lost the question. It's okay. I was just asking you about the um, attitude of simply building more houses to fix oh, the state's yes, housing sorry. crisis. Um, yes. Yeah. So. You, say you build a lot of houses into the private market and then those uh, new owners decide to put it into the short stay accommodation uh just making the issue worse they could make more money um but there's the the what is motivating this new housing build if it is not the human need then it is the greed and then we, we're not fixing anything. What we need is a lot more medium, uh, medium density building. We need it to be across the state, across the country. Um, we need far more public housing that will not just push all those in the most vital of need into public housing, but have it as a wider community for all of those who want to live in public housing. Um, so the, the, the attitude of just build more out, out of context is, is completely false. Uh, and we can see it because we have the stock that's, that's being misused. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a lot of public housing that is being misused. So it, the attitude of the government uh, as far as, I can tell from an outsider seems to be that of trying to avoid responsibility at all costs. Yeah. Okay. Further, further to that, I mean, you're talking about short stay accommodation and Airbnbs in general. Is there anything sure. in the plan? I mean, I know the plan is big, but I'm not sure how big exactly it is. Uh, is there anything in the plan that says or will stop these houses being built from just being turned into Airbnbs? Uh, not as far as I'm aware. Um, obviously, uh, that those, those which are designated as uh, community housing or affordable housing or uh, build to rent um, would not be able to be turned into um, Airbnbs. But um, the mention of short stay accommodation within this plan is, uh, I believe, a 7.5% levy. Um, without further regulation, I can't imagine this will be doing much good. It's it's not a huge amount for a very profitable business, for a very profitable business that uh, takes a huge percent of the profits and uh, for doing very little. Um, and uses those homes that can remain empty for so much of the year <laughs> and they're still mm. making more, right? So, um, sorry, uh, could you repeat the question? I was just asking you about um, if the plan, if the plan mentions um, short any... accommodation. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, yes, yeah, so okay. it does mention short, short stay accommodation. Um, and, and there is a 7.5% levy. 
Um, the the Renters and Housing Union uh, has believes that this is not close to enough to curve this huge problem. We need regulation and we need it a long time ago. Um, hmm. uh, the, yeah. the homes should not become businesses, uh, we feel. And, you know, we've all stayed in short stay accommodation, not begrudging anybody who uses it. Uh, it's the system they live in. So of course they're going to use it, but, um, you know, renting out maybe a, or, or using one room in a house that's lived in for short stay accommodation rather than an entire house could, could make a massive difference. The amount of people on waiting lists for homes or the amount of people struggling to find a rental. Sure. I just want to ask um, just one last question. Um, sure. I haven't really seen much discourse. I know, I know the plan mentions that it's going to kind of um, change how planning for building works. Mm-hmm. What, what exactly does that mean? Um, again, uh, there's a lot of vague terms uh, around this plan. Um, we, I mean, I'm generally supportive. We are generally supportive of um, raising the uh, minimum requirements for building. Um, obviously, every, well, it's sort of a just a general belief now that uh, new homes aren't built as well as old homes. You'll get a home a long time ago that is built a lot better, that lasts a lot longer. Um, uh, so that I, I would say that that's probably possibly a positive out of it, um, although it doesn't it doesn't go far enough, which is you know the theme of a lot of um, these plans and 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 our governments that are taking a very short term approach to planning. Um, you know they'll say that this uh this plan goes up to 2050 but it doesn't really add much stock that is needed um so it 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 seems to be more about selling the government and taking pressure off criticism than it does about actually doing anything in the short medium and long term awesome thanks harry um no worries that's everything well can i just say uh thank you uh, and also, uh, if you want to get in the fight into the fight for housing justice, please join the Renters and Housing Union at rahu.org.au. That's r-a-h-u.org.au. Thank you so much. Welcome back to 3CR with Rob, James, and Grace. That was again my interview with Harry Millward, a delegate from the Renters and Housing Union, um, and we were just talking about Victoria's Victorian Labor's housing plan. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
Shimendoka by Haruomi Hosono and the Magic Yellow Band. Uh, now we're going to jump to an interview that Dirt Radio did where Claude Goar spoke to Friends of the Earth No New Gas campaigner Freya Leonard about how renters deserve to have gas-free homes and how to make it happen. What is the significance of getting off gas when it comes to climate change? Well, gas is easily, you know, one of the most potent climate accelerants that we have. It's 80 times more polluting to the climate than carbon dioxide. And uh, and that's over a 20-year period. And, of course, the next 20 years are absolutely critical in stopping runaway, unlivable climate change. We only have to look at what's been happening in the global north in the last couple of months and remember the bushfires that we ourselves have lived through prior to the pandemic and the flooding that has followed that to understand that we are already in a climate crisis. So it's really urgent that we put the brakes on gas immediately and really, you know, look at how we can maximise energy efficiency and um, and move to a zero carbon energy future. Absolutely. Thanks for that kind of overview. It's always good to situate because there's like so many different aspects of like, you know, coal and gas and um, yeah, getting off fossil fuels. So it's really good to kind of like figure out exactly where gas sits in, in, um, in the scheme of things. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the recent announce- announcement that there will be no more new gas connections in new houses being built? It would be my pleasure. I am delighted to celebrate that the Victorian government has seen the sense of refusing new gas connections. This is something that I and a number of campaigners have been working on for many years. Uh, I've been on this crusade for about three and a half years or something. So it's really, really you know, excellent to see the Victorian government stepping up to some common sense. And in fact, when they announced that they were no longer going to be forcing new developments to connect to gas where it was available... Uh, that was a moment that was that was uh, that was an opportunity that was lost. I was honestly hoping that at that point they would be saying we'll be banning any new gas connections. But to be clear, it's not all gas connections. It's just gas connections under planning permit, so in the planning scheme, and it's only for residential. So if you're building a big commercial building, uh, you can still have that heated by gas, which we see as really unfortunate. I mean, you know, we've banned um, smoking in public buildings across Victoria because we recognise that it's really bad for people's health to be inside a closed environment with a smoker. But uh, when we use gas heating, gas cooking in our homes and buildings, it is the same as being inside with a heavy smoker. It leads to a 12% increase in asthma risk. So, you know, we, we really think that if the state government is serious about protecting people's health, protecting the climate and saving people from a really un- uneconomic fuel source, that they will refuse gas connections full stop across Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully that's the next step. But um, yeah, a huge win anyway for the campaign and yeah, awesome to get those wins along the way. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see the Get Off Gas Pledge website up and running. How's it going? Tell us a bit about it. So at the moment we are sneaking up on 200 pledges. We might have just pipped 200 pledges while I've been sitting here. Um, we had a very soft, quiet launch just amongst friends so that we could test out, iron out any bugs, you know, um, 
and uh, we're already seeing quite a strong result from people. You know, I was expecting that it was just going to be a bunch of my friends that were signing up to start off with and fellow activists, and it turns out that there's this really quite broad range of people, names I've not seen before, so word is getting out. Um, the Get Off Gas, Gas Pledge, we are inviting people to go to um, http colon forward slash forward slash <laughs> getoffgas, all one word, dot org, dot au. Um, we, if you have gas in your home, we would like you to say what gas appliances you have, how many people in your household, and this is quite important, to say whether you are owning your own home, whether you are a private renter or you're in public or social housing, making the distinction between public housing provided by the state government and social housing that's more charity-run, affordable housing options. And uh, and then take the pledge. And when you do that, you have the option to then send an email through to your local MP and it also goes to the Energy Minister. And it says to um, the politicians of Victoria, I want to get off gas. I would like some help to do that if required. Uh, not everybody can afford to install solar panels. Not everybody can afford to um, swap their appliances out. But particularly if you're a renter or if you're living in public or social housing, you literally have no say in what appliances you have in your home and what kind of energy you're using in your home. And so all of these fantastic government schemes that the Victorian government has been rolling out over the past few years with appliance upgrades to more efficient appliances, um, you know, subsidised solar panel installation are great but if you're a renter or a public or social housing resident, you know that these programs are not for you. And, Claude, we're seeing that in the way people are taking up the Get Off Gas pledge. The overwhelming majority of people who are taking the pledge are people who own their own home. So these are people who feel like the options are available for them and that they can ask for what they want. And we're seeing very, very few renters taking the pledge. And in fact, I'm surprised, you know, given that um, 30% of Victorians are renting and only about 2% of Victorians are in public or social housing, um, we've actually had more respondents from public and social housing than we have from renters to the pledge. And it really just says how cripplingly disengaged the rental community are. So I'm putting an appeal out to all of the renters listening this morning. Please go, if you have gas in your home and you don't want to have gas in your home anymore, please go fill in the pledge, getoffgas.org.au and let us know what your experience is. There's a little comments box and those comments are gold. We're using those to populate a report that we're now writing with a bunch of um, policy measures that compel rental fuel switching and maximise rental efficiency to ensure that rental properties are more comfortable and livable and more efficient and um, zero carbon or as close to zero carbon as possible. Yeah, awesome. And I think definitely renters often fall through the cracks when it comes to these things and they feel like there's no option for them. Um, but it's really awesome that because on the second part of the pledge, you then send an email to um, MPs to um, encourage them to to put the pressure on um, on owners. That's to, right. Is that right? That's yeah. exactly right. And so, well, um, what you're doing is you're saying to the MPs, this many renters in your area want to get off gas so that when we're ready to release our report, and that should be in the next month or so, 
uh, we're able to go to the MPs who can see that they've got a number of renters in their community who are struggling and really want to get off gas and want help to do that, um, we can go to those MPs and we can say, look, here's a bunch of policy measures that are going to uh, go some way towards meeting the needs of your constituents. Uh, it's going to. I mean, on a morning as cold as this morning, this is a typical day for Victoria, the most heavy gas-using state in Australia, to suddenly spike with our gas use. You know, everyone's turning on. If they've got central heating, they're using that. Um, you know, like everybody is is having a longer, hotter shower, mm. and because so many of our appliances are fueled by gas, we see these crazy spikes in gas use. So this morning is a classic example of why we really need to switch every household in Victoria from gas to renewable electricity. It's a critical urgency, not just for our you know bank balances, while gas is horrendously expensive. You know, and we're all facing cost of living pressure, but also for our health and for the climate as a whole. That was Freya Leonard, Friends of the Earth's No New Gas campaigner, talking to Claude Gowa from Dirt Radio about how renters deserve to have gas-free homes, how to make it happen. And you can sign the petition to stop the hydrogen energy supply chain project. Uh, to find it, simply uh, just Google stop the en- the hydrogen energy supply chain Petition in Google, and it should come up. Now we're going to go to a song that Rob really likes, uh, called Dust by the Marxist Love Disco Ensemble.
And that was Dust by Marx's Love Discord Ensemble. Now we're going to be speaking to Dr. J. Daniel Thompson, who is a lecturer for professional communication at RMIT University. We're going to be discussing the problem with turning to influencers for information and how can we ensure ethical online communication. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Great to be here. Lovely. All right, Jay, so just to start off, how did you yourself come across this topic as a researcher and what inspired you to dive deeper into it? I love that question. Look, I'm a media and communications researcher and it struck me that just at the moment when there are so many ways of communicating with others, that we as a society have failed to communicate. We're miscommunicating. We're talking past each other. Mm. We're talking in echo chambers, shouting and cursing at each other, spreading inaccurate information. So in my work, I set out to do something about this. Mm, fantastic. And just before we get into it, uh, yes. what exactly are influencers? So influencers are individuals who use their social media platforms to promote goods, services and lifestyles. They influence their audience. Some influencers are qualified experts. You see medical practitioners, personal trainers, chefs. Mm. Others just have a strong interest in the topic, but no formal qualifications. Some people work full-time as influencers. It can be quite lucrative if you're really successful. For others, it's just something they do on the side. Mm. And so, uh, Dr. G. Uh, with yes. now with this era of social media and just the constant spread of information by these influencers, how have social how have social media like these influencers delivered just citizen journalism throughout the years? All right, so I'll I'll start with what is citizen journalism, and that mm. is journalism produced by individuals who may not regard themselves as being professional journalists, as just being everyday folk like you and I. Yeah. So social media and mobile technologies have, you know, been extensively used in the last two decades to report on news and current affairs on the ground as they're happening. Uh, the Arab Spring conflict of the early 2010s are an often cited example. More recently, we've seen folk use TikTok and Twitter, etc., mm. to report on the Russian-Ukraine conflict and the Israel-Hamas conflict. Mm. And so, Dr. J, your research basically focuses on the ethical online communication. Why do yes. you think it's so important to mitigate digital hostility? And how has disinformation infected online users influence in the face of current issues like the Israel-Hamas war? Great question. So, look, I define digital hostility as online communication that seeks primarily or exclusively to degrade, to offend, to silence, to injure, I definitely believe the spread of misinformation can be regarded as a mode of digital hostility, accusing others of spreading fake news. What this does is, you know, often without any basis, what this does is have a real chilling impact. And, of course, with the recent conflicts, we're seeing all kinds of horrible stories being promoted about certain racial and cultural groups. So I think now more than ever, it's important to ask, well, 
what might ethical online communication look like. It won't just look like one thing. It'll look like many things. But I think we all have a role to play. Mm. And with with that, you know, but for many out, the online users out there, they're not actually professional journalists. What do you think some, are some of the important factors to keep in mind when it comes to posting information online to ensure ethical communication? Great question. Always check and double-check accuracy. Who posted the information? What are their biases? Is this a reliable source? Mistakes do happen in a 24-hour news cycle, 24-7. Media users and media professionals post factually inaccurate information, often accidentally. If this does happen, acknowledge publicly your error and move on. In regards to digital hostility, bear in mind that someone's reading the communication you're producing and that this can have quite devastating impact on their mental health and well-being. Ask yourself, well, how, you know, how might this person receive this information? Would I like to receive it? I think empathy goes a long way. And just the other thing, you don't need to comment on every big news story. Know when to stand back. <laughs> That's very true. But then, yes. yeah, but Dr. J, in, in Australia here, we, we see very heavily concentrated mainstream media and there's also tend to be biasness in news output out there. Do you think it's still, do you think relying on social media is more comprehensive? Well, there's always been bias. Mm. Let's not kid ourselves. I think on a positive note, media consumers here in Australia have access to such a wide range of news sources and should try and engage with all of these or as many of these as possible. So there's social media, there's also newspapers, government reports. The ABC TV show Media Watch, I think, provides a great lesson in media framing, in media reportage, bias, etc. Educate yourself. Accept nothing at face value. And do not share something because it incites strong feelings. Sharing isn't always caring. <laughs> well said. Hashtag. Well said. Um, you talked about the echo chamber effect uh, yeah. a little bit earlier on. Are there any ways that you can, um, I guess, combat that? And if you do embark on citizen journalism and eth yes. want to communicate ethically, how can we overcome the echo chamber effect and reach a wider audience or maybe just a different audience? Look, that's a great question. I think if I was going to give you a comprehensive response, we'd be here all day. <laughs> like I said earlier, read widely. Consume a range of sources including or perhaps particularly those that don't always echo your worldview. Speak to speak widely to people with opposing viewpoints. Like I said, accept nothing at face value. Don't post something simply for popularity or for like. Mm. This can increase misinformation and partisanship, I believe. Mm. Fantastic. Thank you. And Dr. J, just one last question for you. Do you think transparency or objectivity is more important when it comes to journalism? And is this being portrayed in social media? Oh, big question. So, look, I want to emphasise that total 
objectivity, reporting on something with no prior biases, no thoughts about the matter, etc., is impossible. That, that's long been established. I think transparency is the more realistic and desirable option. Where did this quote or statistic come from? What are your biases? Who have you spoken to? How do you have knowledge about this? Be as upfront as you possibly can for the medium you're working for. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. J. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that was Dr. J. Daniel Thompson, the lecturer for professional communication at RMIT University, where we are discussing the problem with turning to influencers for information and how can we ensure ethical online communication. Any of us may become a carer at any time in our lives, even temporarily. Carer Gateway is a free support service for anyone who cares for a family member or friend with disability, a medical condition, mental illness, or who is frail due to age. If you or someone you know are a carer, call Carer Gateway on 1800 422 737 or visit carergateway.gov.au to get support that is right for you. Carer Gateway is a 3CR supporter. This November, the Australian National Academy of Music presents a festival celebrating the music of pioneering American composer George Crumb. Across four thrilling performances, Crumb's dynamic and engaging music will be paired alongside music by Igor Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, Edgar Varese and more from the 23rd to the 25th of November at Abbotsford Convent. Find out more and book your tickets at anam.com.au. The Australian National Academy of Music is a 3CR supporter. Okay, this is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? from December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter.
That was My Goodness by Emma Donovan and The Putbacks. And that's just about it for our show this week. What's planned for the rest of the week, Grace? Well, I am submitting my <laughs> final assignments this yeah. week, so huge. that's my think for this week, basically. The final, final time, I'm saying that I'm submitting assignments and just doing work, because honestly, I just want to have a life. I don't <laughs> yeah. just be going to the library and sitting there yeah. doing my work. I really mm. just want to do something fun, and especially because mm. it's end of the year soon, and I'm graduating, so yeah. yeah. Um, so close. So close. It's, so like close. it's like the interview we played earlier has really already <laughs> had an effect on you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thinking about the good life, what could be. <laughs> yes. About the good life. Yeah, I'm glad I brought up that interview again because, yes, I need to start con- contemplating what makes a good life. Mm. Yep. How about you, Rob? Um, my focus now I'm, now I'm back after my little holiday is I'm actually competing in a powerlifting competition Ooh. in December. Ooh. Um, I, uh, as a non-binary person, I attend T-Generation Gym. It's trans-owned and operated gym in Brunswick. Awesome. And yeah, in December, they're having like a sort of open, all-gender powerlifting awesome. competition um, called the Trans Takeover 2.0, I think. So yeah, my uh, like eight weeks before, my focus is fully just on yeah. lifting as much weight as possible and getting my nervous system kind of into that, ready to go and ready. Yeah, is this your first powerlifting event? Yes. Hey. Yes. So, I mean, it's you know, it's it's, it's more just about what I can do. That's all I'm really focused on. Yeah. What I can do. Um, I don't really like the competition, like, of between people and whatever. I just wanted to see what I can do. Mm. Just have fun. And just have fun. Yeah. And That's be around other trans people lifting heavy weights, and it's going to be cool. Lifting Sick. lifting heavy weights is fun. It's <laughs> yeah. not everyone's cup of tea, but yeah. personally, ooh, I like a bit of that. Yeah. I've been trying a bit of weights, and it's a bit... I mean, I'm not the strongest, I would say, because I have very weak arms. So mm. uh, I've been trying to get it to get stronger. So I've been trying yeah. the weights. But yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> but it is fun. It is fun. It's fun. And it's much better than running. I actually like running now, <laughs> like surprisingly. Running. I used to hate it so much. Like, Whoa. it was not my thing. <laughs> I despise it. I literally would not ever go yeah. on a marathon. But I've been getting it into it. I feel like it gets me lost in my thoughts. And that's mm. why I love it now. I miss the... um. I mean, I've only like really ran like a few times, but I miss the f- the feeling like that it creates in your brain is yeah. it's like nothing else. I've only ever gotten that twice. Yeah, <laughs> and both times I was listening to an awesome podcast on philosophy, mm. and I somehow I got into the zone and would run like twelve kilometers. Wow! Yeah. And I've never done it again. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. <laughs> It's yeah. tough times. What's going on for your week, James? That's us brutal, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my week, just more reading, more musicking. I'm diving deep into music history as part of my binging. Mm. More binging documentaries. Mm. And a bit of PhD work, but I'm still warming into it. Still warming know? up. Yeah. Nice. Got to exercise that muscle before I jump straight in, you That's know. It. So that just about wraps us up. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast here on 855 AM 3CR. If you want to re-listen to any parts of our show or check out the show notes about songs played and that sort of thing, you can just jump to the 3CR website slash Monday Breakfast. 
And that's about it. We'll catch you next week and get ready for a new episode of Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.